0: All right. Good evening, everybody. Dr. Richard Alm here for a uh, another thoughts on um, the topic. The topic that I'm going to talk about tonight is a is a I wouldn't say it's controversial, but it's certainly one that creates a lot of heat. Um, but I feel like it's 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 grown big enough, and I really need to get my my hat in the ring, so to speak. And that topic is um, repetitively flexing your lumbar spine under load. So. <clears throat> This is, I've, I've kind of watched this, I mean, really, for probably the past maybe six to eight years, I've watched this movement, air quotes, movement grow, where I see, you know, social media pundits, so to speak, or self, self-appointed pundits, if you will, out there spreading this message that it is totally okay to flex your spine under load. Um, so... The, the, the argument that I, I typically see or that you're going to first come across um, is that dysfunction does not equal pain, right? This is typically spewed out by the flexion under load is not all that bad for you camp. And I, I, I want to talk about this tonight because while there are cases that I'm going to talk about that show, or at least have examples where, yeah, you can, you have athletes that flex their spine under load and they are not reporting any pain. I think this message is causing a tremendous amount of damage and pun intended. And so I want to talk about this a little bit because I keep coming across it more and more, you know, in discussions with, you know, people in the field, you know, when I'm teaching out uh, around the country and then of course, you know, on the, the internet and social media and all that kind of stuff. So the flexion under load camp, as I just said, sort of usually starts with dysfunction does not equal pain. And um, that, that, is, that is no doubt true. And one can find, of course, with minimal effort, you can find an example of someone performing a movement with bad form, let's say squatting with a, a pronounced butt wink at the bottom. And if you ask them, they'll, they'll say that they have no back pain. You know, maybe they're doing a Jefferson, a heavy Jefferson curl, uh, that's where you're sort of doing this weird RDL kind of movement where you're sort of rounding your back over all the way down in a, in a stiff-legged deadlift and then rounding it back all the way up. And they'll say, oh, you know, that that doesn't bother me or my back feels fine. Um, and this is what the flexion under load, um, repetitive flexion under load camp is typically spewing out. Now, there are no doubt... Case examples and research. If you if you dig into this and you see the research, there's no doubt research um, that supports this. But this is very short sighted, Um, and the message is is without question a net negative. It's doing far more harm to the population that listens to this message than it is doing good. So let's let's first start out because typically there's two arguments besides the broad one that dysfunction does not equal pain. There's two arguments. That the the flexion under load, loaded flexion under, or sorry, yikes! That the flexion under load camp is sort of setting forth, and that is they use case examples, and then they they are of course going to cite research. So let's let's dig into case examples first. Um, so case examples, you know, you can find someone that can can tolerate flexing under load, and using a case example makes one very, very bad error. And that is assuming that the athlete, you know, the case example, that that athlete's tissue tolerance is the same as the population that you apply the conclusion to, that being the general population. So you find an athlete, which is not hard to do, that is, you know, online and they're still performing. So there's another assumption there that, okay, just because they're able to compete, then they must not have a back injury or they must not have you know, significant back pain, which you don't know. And oftentimes the athlete is just amazingly focused and able to push through that stuff. But you find an athlete, you find a person that is able to get away with flexing their spine under load. And then you say, see, so-and-so can do it. So therefore it must apply to everybody. That assumption is terrible because it's assuming that the tissue tolerance of the general population or the, the population at large is the same as that athlete. Let me give you an example of a hugely influential person in my life, uh, my former or my former coach, um, my coach, close friend, mentor, all those things. Uh, Judd Logan, who passed away recently, um, I trained with Judd for over a decade. I was actually Judd's physician for over a decade, not really overlapping. Um, and let's just say that Judd's form was less than ideal. So he did not have great back squat form. Uh, his squat, you know, looked a lot more like you know an RDL. Uh, than, than an actual squat, and he had a, a pretty pronounced, you know, rounding of the low back at the bottom of a squat. So when you look at that, you can, you can see, you know, Judd and saying like, oh, yeah, see, you know, Judd squats, and, you know, and he doesn't have any pain. You know, remarkably, Judd was able to squat with that kind of form for, I mean, decades, two, three decades, and he reportedly had other, other than just their normal low back soreness, um, really never had a back injury. And I, and I, and I trained with him for the the second half of his, you know, legendary career. Four four time Olympian. I think he broke the American record over twenty times. I mean, one of the he threw the the illustrious eighty meters in, in the men's hammer, which is like throwing hundred miles an hour in, in baseball. And yet he did not report any back injuries. So that was both when I was training with him and also when I was treating him for over a decade and he never had any back injuries. So we can look at that and we can use Judd as a case example to support the flexion under load is totally fine camp. But if you consider Judd, Judd is uh, like an anomaly. He's a genetic freak. He's a genetic anomaly whose tissue tolerance Right, for loaded flexion is several standard deviations off the norm. So, if we then just assume that the general population is going to have the same tissue tolerance for loaded flexion as a four time Olympian or this amazing athlete, um, that is a really, really, really bad assumption, right? And yet, you know, you can. Find that example, and you can say, oh, yeah, see, this guy does it. You know, he's a great athlete. He's been training for a while. He doesn't have any back pain. He flexes, you know, his lumbar spine at the bottom of the squat, so everyone should do it. Terrible assumption, right? He may be able to get away with it, but that example um, is, is, is a rare one, someone that can go that long without any problem. So assuming or applying that conclusion then, so the general population, I think, is a really bad thing. Um, the other one, the, the other main argument that is usually put forth is research, right? And so I'm a physician. I'm also a meathead, strength coach guy. And you'll find people that, are, that, that use, they'll cite one article or two or three articles, and they'll say, see, you know, here's an article that does this. And, and they, they present it like it's a kill shot, Right. And they, they, they'll state their research, cite the research, and it's just like, mic drop, you know, fuck off. You know, I just found one article that, that says this. Now, mind you, in many of these cases, they're not looking at the methods. They're not actually like considering the population. They're just looking at maybe in worst case scenarios, just the abstract. If you're lucky, they'll actually look at the conclusion. Um, rarely ever they're actually going into the results, and almost never are they actually reading the entire article. And so, when someone drops research like a kill shot, that's um, you know research is certainly important, but they're they're misunderstanding the limitations, so they're underestimating the limitations that come with research. So research is of course incredibly powerful, incredibly important, um, but it is not a kill shot. And to say that you know they'll say research indicates or research says, and you know I've I've talked about this at length before. If you've not read 20, 30, 40 articles on the subject, you literally have no fucking idea what research says about it. So all of us could hop online with a simple Google search and and maybe five minutes of your time, you can find research that will support quite literally anything that you want to do, right? Anything that you want to do. And so, you know, the cases of lumbar flexion, loaded lumbar flexion, I want to sort of dig into this a little bit because there's some significant Limitations in the research, and to think that just citing one article or two, three, even five articles somehow is—you know—is this kill shot for the argument that, like, hey, maybe flexion under load um, isn't really that good of an idea? Um, you know, we need to pay attention to that. The first one is that these studies are almost exclusively short-term studies. OK, they're going to have a population come in. The population size is usually dangerously low, like literally as low as you can possibly be and still demonstrate statistical significance. So they have a population come in 10, 12, you know, 15 athletes, and they basically observe them squatting. They observe them deadlifting, Olympic lifting, whatever the case may be. Old Forester, if you're wondering what I'm drinking. Um, they observe them and then they just ask, like, oh, have you had any back pain or do you have any back pain now? And these athletes are like, No, I feel great. Well, what they're what they're not doing is they're not actually following that athlete. I don't know of any longitudinal studies that go 15, 20 years, and they follow that athlete for a long period of time and see well what happens with them, right? And they're not saying, like, oh, okay, cool. If you flex your spine under load repetitively for two decades, oh yeah, there's no statistical significant difference between those that don't and those that do. We don't have those studies, right? And that's not necessarily a flaw in the research. That's just reality. It's difficult to produce that research, to to do that study. And there's so many extraneous variables. I don't even know if it's worth doing. But most of the research that we're seeing is very, very, very short term. Three weeks, maybe six weeks, very, very short term. So if you say, Oh yeah, here's two articles, and they show that people that flex their spine, you know, there's 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 minimal or poor correlation between those that flex their spine and having low back pain. Well, it's in a short-term period, right? It's in and that that time period um, is not typically the time period where lower back pain is going to manifest as an injury or even symptoms, right? Um, The other one is that the other problem with research is that those people that are typically doing squats, deadlifts, you know, snatches and cleans uh, tend to be a very, very special cohort, okay? And those tend to be 18 to 25-year-olds, right? There's the the drop-off for that kind of lifting after college is dramatic, Right, So there is a very small population of people that continue into their late 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s that continue to do these movements. Now, I'm one of those people, right? So I'm in my 40s and I'm consistently doing kettlebell swings and Olympic lifting and um, snatches and all that kind of stuff. So I'm a a proponent of that style lifting. But the people that are in these studies tend to be 18 and 25-year-olds. And now when I was... You know, in my 20s, I was quite literally almost invincible or felt like that. You know, I would just absolutely beat the shit out of myself in the weight room with like a heavy posterior chain workout, you know, 10 sets of, of, of triples in the deadlift or a bunch of Olympic lifting followed by German volume training in the squats, right? And I did not have what I would say magnificent squat form. And, you know, I, I could get away with murder and other than, you know, having... One bout of legit low back pain where I herniated a disc my sophomore year um, and, and had to sort of, you know, treat is a <laughs> as a soft word. I'm using that term loosely for sure. Um basically trained through it. I was able to train through a pretty good disc herniation that that occurred during doing a back squat cuz I had a, a nice, you know, obvious, you know, my my mother would be able to to see that I'm rounding my back over at the bottom of the squat. But that was my sophomore year in college, right? So at that at that time I am not 19, like 20 years old. And other than that like probably 6 month period where I had to work through that, I was able to train all the way until I was 30 years Years old and have very minimal, minimal interference in my training. So, you know, I did have a a bout of low back pain, but if you asked me when I was 26 years old, squatting twice a week, heavy twice a week, hey, do you have back pain? I would have said, nothing more than just normal back pain that comes with, you know, being a competitive hammer thrower and Olympic weightlifter. I, it was just normal stuff to me. And it wasn't even like normal severe. It was like, I would get done with a workout and I would, you know, the next day or the next couple of days I would have what I thought was delayed onset muscle soreness, meaning I worked adequately hard, you know, in my training session. Um, But I know now clinically I actually was sort of aggravating the disc and the tightness and the pain and the aching was not because the actual you know, muscle physiology was adapting and getting bigger. It was because, you know, the discs and the spine was kind of angry and I was getting these trigger points and this aggravated pain. But it wasn't prohibiting my training. You know, maybe I warmed up a little bit more, but I was able to just continue training without too much trouble whatsoever. Um, So for me, you know, does that mean that, you know, because I was able to do that in my 20s, does that mean therefore that I should continue to squat heavy, repeatedly with you know repetitive flexion of my lumbar spine under load all the way into my 30s 40s 50s and beyond um, the answer is absolutely not so what because you know as you get older your tissue tolerance kind of deteriorates you know that's just the normal aging process what you can you know get away with what Works when you're 20 years old, 22 years old, 25 years old, does not work later on. Your tissue tolerance changes. So when you look at research that says, oh, yeah, here's a research with 25 athletes and it shows no correlation or minimal or poor correlation between, you know, flexing of the lumbar spine at the bottom of a squat and pain, well, that population is able to get away with that, right? And so assuming the tissue tolerance of someone who is in their 20s that assumes that, oh, it it therefore applies to their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond is a very bad assumption. So on the research front, two of the major flaws with the research are, one, they're typically short-term studies, and two, they're usually studying a cohort that is made of rubber, 18 years old, 20 years old, 22 years old. You know, we're rarely ever taking these studies. I don't know of any study that looked at 35 to 45-year-old athletes that are watching them squat and watching them train. And so, you know, that's just a really, really bad assumption. And And I've sort of seen this you know, in the the lifting population, the coaching population across the country. You know, you meet somebody early on, whether it's like athletes that I trained with or coaches that I've worked with for over a decade, and their training methodology and what they're doing, not only with themselves, but in their athletes changes dramatically because they're experiencing that, you know, change in age, right? So that's, that's a that's a very, very important point. I actually asked Mike Boyle, the, the, the famous Mike Boyle about this uh many, many years ago. I asked him about you know flexing flexing the spine, you know, in a squat. Well, Mike famously sort of got rid of the squat because it was causing too many problems and, and then now really only does front-loaded squats. Um, I could do another podcast on the the actual biomechanical benefit to doing a front-loaded squat versus back squat. But when I asked him about that, he just looked at me in a very Mike Boyle way. He said, train someone for 15 years like that, you know, flexing the spinal to load, and see how that works. And the, the short answer is, it doesn't. It just does not work. And, and most people that are that are that are sort of touting this message or spreading this message are either you know, under the age of 30 themselves or work almost exclusively with a population of, you know, invincible humans. They're working with high school athletes. They're working with college athletes, right? The, the, the vast majority of coaches out there are working with athletes that are, you know, at a point in their life where they can get away with a ton of terrible shit. And so if you're saying like, well, You know, I'm seeing this research article and it says that you can flex your spine under load and I'm, you know, watching some of my athletes and yeah, they're, they're flexing their spine under load. So it should be fine. So what is working or, you know, more accurately, you know, what is, what they're getting away with you know, repetitive squatting with a butt wink, you know, rounding your back over to deadlift, you know, cleaning, snatching, whatever the case may be, you can get away with that. And what I mean by get away is like, yeah, you can get stronger off that. Your squat goes up, your vertical goes up, Um, And you're able to bounce back quickly. But, you know, these are things that later in your life, you know, it it doesn't work like that. And in most cases, because coaches are working with such a limited population, the damage that is done does not actually come to roost or manifest itself until many, many years after they've left your, your guidance or your tutelage. So, you have an athlete come in, you know, you've got these high school kids and you're squatting them heavier in, or college and you're having them do you know, heavy Jefferson curls or whatever. And you're saying, oh, dude, it's totally fine. Like research says that you know, it doesn't cause any injury. There's minimal correlation between you know, flexing your spine and pain, or there's no correlation, or dysfunction does not equal pain. Well, those athletes are, are, are having microaggressions, micro trauma. Applied to the spine that they can kind of bounce back from, but as their body ages, as their body sort of deteriorates, those injuries sort of come to head in their 30s and their 40s. And I see these people all the time. These are these are people that, you know, that now they're 45 years old and they felt totally fine when they were in college or high school. And they all have a story about, oh yeah, I was doing this and I used to train with this and squatting and whatever. And I hurt my back one day and it felt fine, bounced back, but now like, you know, bending over to, you know, put a leash on my dog's neck hurts or sitting for long periods of time hurts. These are manifestations of injuries that happened in their 20s when they were able to bounce back and compensate around that. So for the coaches. Or you know the 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 therapists or the the social media pundits out there, self appointed pundits out there that are saying, yeah, I mean, I can flex my spine, no problem under load. Um, and you know, and you guys are in your twenties, you just really just don't know yet. Like you, you haven't seen that. So given some time with your own body or getting exposure to a cohort of people that are not eighteen to twenty five years old will show you very very quickly that those methods don't work, even if there's research to support it, even if you have a case example of someone that shows, oh, yeah, they flex their spine under load, they should be totally fine. So we have to be really, really careful with that. Now, um, I don't really know, know where the motivation to, to proselytize this message comes from, right? I don't, I don't know if it comes from just a proclivity to be a contrarian. I don't know if it's just for, for likes and shares, or I don't know if it's um, due to an unhealthy dogma for research and they get exposed to something like, well, there's an article that says it, it must be true. Um, but it no doubt sort of produces buzz for the messenger. But this message is, is absolutely in, incredibly damaging to the, the population that actually heeds it. So when you have people that can look at limited research or they look at an article that they don't actually read through and dig into the methods and actually see like, oh, man, that's actually a really small population or, man, that's weird. They just sort of watch them squat, you know, for a couple reps and then just ask them if they had back pain and like oh that's weird well the the population that they're studying was you know high school kids or college kids and they didn't actually look at other populations we you know we have to think like you know is is that actually smart and the answer is it's not so what we need to do is we need to be thinking about what practices really preserve um, the athlete's passive tissues, okay? So passive tissues are basically the non-contractile stuff. So the disc is a passive tissue. Ligaments are a passive tissue. Cartilage, um, menisci. Menisci um, labor, those are all passive tissues that have tremendously important roles in, in stabilization movement and function. And we need to be training in ways that actually preserves those. Cause it's, it's damage to those tissues. That's going to cut people's careers short. And when you do something like, Oh yeah, it's, it's totally fine to, you know, load your spine under flexion repetitively, over years and years and years, you really can get away with it. You can bounce back to it. You're slowly damaging those passive tissues. And in many cases, you're injuring the person that, you know, five, 10 years down the road, they're going to start realizing like, man, man, shit. When I was training, you know, my teens and twenties, I really fucked my up pretty good. You, you felt fine at the time, but now it's sort of coming to roost later on. If you're dealing with a pro athlete, now you're talking about millions of dollars. If you think, about an athlete that, you know, let's say that you've got an NFL guy and, and they injure their back in their second year and they're not unable to get that monster first, you know, oh, sorry, second contract. Or you look at Tom Brady's career, you know, every year that he adds on, he's making tens of millions of dollars. So it, th- those, if you can increase the length, the longevity of an athlete's career, you can have a tremendous impact on how much money they're making. So a lot of these practices repetitive flexion of the spine under load, you might, they might work, you know, when they're younger, but they don't actually work later. So the, that begs the question, if those practices are not effective in, you know, for athletes when they're in their late twenties, early thirties and beyond, are those the best practices? Cause the argument that just cause they can get away with it, right? Just because, you know, it's like they're able to do it and get stronger um, that, that, that's not a great argument. Like we need to be thinking long-term with those people because you can effectively train athletes in a way that does not fuck their body up. It doesn't, they, th- those are not two things that are, that are, that are woven together. And so I think that instead of spreading the message that, well, I mean, butt winks are really common. So if it's common, then it must mean that it's okay is, is, is a really bad argument for that training method. We need to be stepping back farther, looking at a a longer timeline and coming up with better practices because there's lots of bad habits and tradition in the strength training industry that cause all kinds of problems. So when, when you hear someone saying that like flexing the spine under load is totally fine or it's totally normal... You need to throw up a flag there and think about it like, oh, okay, well, what's their argument for it? Oh, their arguments, it's common. Okay, well, what population are they considering? Oh, 18 to 25-year-olds. Or, oh, here's this athlete that is able to do it. Oh, who is that? Oh, it's, you know, Judd Logan or it's, you know, some just freaky talented genetic anomaly that is able to get away with that. And so then we're erroneously applying, you know, that, oh, if it works for them, it's going to work for everybody right? That's bad. You can also think about, you know, the timeline. Well, what are we talking about? Oh, we're talking about athletes that are just training in high school and college. We've never actually thought, is that an effective training method? Um, And is it a safe and effective training method for someone that is in their late twenties, early thirties and beyond? And I, I just don't think that, you know, allowing an athlete or even encouraging an athlete to load up Squats and deadlifts, and just say, "Oh yeah, go ahead and flex the spine." It's normal. It's common, you know. And here's a research article that shows that there's minimal correlation between dysfunction and pain. You are causing all kinds of problems for that athlete later on. I get to clean up these messes clinically, right? I see them in the gym when they're in their 20s, and I literally watch them go through their career. I watch them, you know, retire, and I watch them come into the office with all these these injuries. Now, um, flexion under load, or sorry, or at least flexion of the lumbar spine, is a is is a, is a complex topic, right? And it's very very common in training. There's no doubt. If you watch a hundred athletes squat, you will see the vast majority of them have a butt wink, right? But you know, the, to completely answer or or give. You know, full, you know, adequate time to this conversation. You're just going to have to wait for the next thoughts on because there's a lot of things that go into this. You know, the strategy that someone is flexing the lumbar spine. How often are they doing it? What's the load? There's lots of things to consider here, because while I am adamantly opposed to just, you know, just saying like, oh yeah, go ahead, flex the spine or to load. It doesn't matter. It's it's normal. It's natural. It's it's fine. It's healthy. Everybody does it. So keep going. Um, that being said, I don't think that you have to just eliminate all flexion. And the moment you see any flexion, you have to just pull the rip cord and get that athlete, you know, done with that exercise. That's not the case either. It is much more complex than that. And it's really more than I'm able to handle or, or cover in one podcast. So, you know, in review here, uh, I think that the message that flexing the spine repetitively under load that, it, that, that we're seeing sort of get more and more popular is, is a really, really damaging one. And, and, and it's, it's, it's causing more problems than it's solving. Um, and the, the, the arguments for it are typically you find a case and say, okay, so-and-so can do it, so everybody can do it bad argument. They'll cite research. The research typically is either, you know, of that, that very, very special and unique cohort, those 18 to 25 year old active people, maybe themselves, they fall into that population, right? They haven't actually been applying these methods for, you know, many years or even decades right? Um, And then the other ones, you're not actually following those people in those research articles. You're not actually, they're all short-term. You're not actually following them for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So sure, you can find a case example. Sure, you can find research that shows that flexing the lumbar spine does not directly correlate with pain, but that doesn't mean that that practice isn't deleterious to that athlete's, you know, career and to their function later in life. So with that, I will have my last sip of my, my, my bourbon here. Old Forrester quite good. And I will, uh, be on the lookout for you guys for the next one where I'll tackle flexing the lumbar spine part two in that I'm going to kind of get into a little bit more of the mechanics, the strategy, anatomy and all that kind of good stuff. Um, cause I want to give this topic, you know, adequate amount of time here cause it's an important one, right? So if you guys have any questions, uh, comment below, uh, love to, love to get the discussion on this. I think it's really, really important to get this out there and, uh, have a great night. We'll see you guys.